You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. You've probably gathered this. I'm not a social media type. So my daughter runs uh, a little bit of that. Apparently she does a good job, but I don't understand search engines and things like that. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of the reasons why I love what you do and I I love your work because you're not spending, like many people are spending kind of 90% of their effort on the marketing and how they wrap it up and 10% on the actual material. And I feel you've very successfully outsource that to your daughter and you're focusing on being a master of your craft. You can either spend time on Facebook and Instagram or you can work to become a master of the craft. You cannot be both. I think (laughs) there maybe there's the opening. I don't know. (laughs) I think that's a great place to start. So here with the authority on back pain. And that is not There's no hype, no hyperbole there. This man is truly a master of his craft. We are lucky enough to be listening to Dr. Stu McGill. He is an academic. He's a clinician. He's a researcher. He's done a lot of his own laboratory studies himself. He's been a professor at the University of Waterloo for 30 years. I am fanboying very hard to be able to speak to, to, to Stu, but this year we've been facing a lot of people throwing their backs out because partly there's a lot more sitting. People are no longer commuting to work. There's a lot of working from home, plus gyms opening and closing and opening and closing and there's spikes of activity. And we're resulting in a lot more of of this stuff going on. So I've been reading a lot of Stu's work and the thing that I think he brings to the table is a really clear framework for athletic populations to to get them out of back pain. And he has a very nuanced approach. It's not just a one-size-fits-all fits all thing. And it depends on the athlete, things like yoga helping some people and not helping others and so on. And he also recognizes the need for performance. Unlike often you go to a, a GP or a, a clinician, you say, oh, my back hurts. And they go, well, what are you doing? Weightlifter. And they go, well, like, you should stop that weightlifting. And it's, yeah, obviously, but within the parameters of what I'm doing, how can I fix that? And that's why I'm very glad to speak to him today. Stu, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Yousef. And as I uh, mentioned, just in our little off camera, getting to know one another, I know who I'm talking to. So I'm talking to a person who's a frontline clinician and has the scientific and medical background to allow the kind of discussion that I hope we're going to have. <laughs> we were, I was talking to a friend the other day about how in clinical medicine, when you see someone who is who has gone deep, has really ran up to the, the very edges of their field, the distance between them and me as still with the title doctor, but really very junior, is probably the same distance between me and a chimpanzee. I really appreciate the, the level of, of expertise that you, that you have to bring to the table here. And we were just saying, as, as you said, off camera, that 2020 or this decade is the kind of year where we don't really see true experts because people who shout loudest are the ones who get the most exposure. And so there's this trend towards putting so much of your effort and energy into social media and marketing that the people who are just quietly 
in the trenches doing the stuff get ignored and you're you're lucky you have a daughter who's been doing a lot of that for you but i think you deserve a lot more exposure than you do (laughs) (laughs) i don't know how to sign on to facebook (laughs) anyway but if i don't want to derail your uh line of uh thought or how you want to set this up but it was just a thought came to mind in working with athletes and it's interesting if you took a car company say like honda motor corporation from japan why do they produce an f1 race car and one of the reasons is they get to test ultimate performance ultimate demands on the machine and how to pull out and optimize that performance the gear change technology in the honda civic came from f1 the logic so when i work with the top or the most dangerous combat athlete in the world or someone who has the absolute world record in, in squats, which was Brian Carroll, by the way, last month, which you may, may not have heard. And all of these people came from a little bit of a challenged place, sometimes a very dark place with their pain. And sometimes it was a matter of tuning. But my point was, what we learn from elite performance, just like Honda Motor Car and the F1 race analogy i now learn what's humanly possible i learn what's possible in terms of human adaptation tuning the body for strength power range of motion all these kinds of things and then i can bring them down to uh, a stay-at-home mom who's struggling to lift her uh three-month-old baby out of the crib so that's maybe a, a little bit of a setup that people will say oh well you work with elites what does that have to do with me it has a lot to do with everybody. We're still Absolutely. in this linkage governed by neurology, psychology, anatomy, and everything else. And we're, we're all humans operating in the same hardware that we've maybe stressed to different levels. But as you said, the psychological component of this is definitely not to be ignored. And it would be great to, to go into that as well. Mm-hmm. For people listening to this, they probably have heard my experience with back pain as well and some of the, the processes that that I've gone through to to improve it, very much influenced by your book, Ultimate Back Fit Pro and Back Mechanic. Can we start with just some of the basics just to provide a, a framework for people to, to hang the rest of this onto? Okay. You, you use the word back pain. Let me give an example, but I'm just going to change one word and it will be not back pain, but leg pain. Can you imagine you're a clinician now and a patient comes to you and say, doc, I have leg pain. Can you give me the right exercise or can you give me the right pill or should I have surgery? I don't know of a clinician who would say, here's the exercise. Every single one of them would do a thorough assessment and determine whether they have torn knee ligaments, a fractured bone, sore muscles, (laughs) or what the situation is. And yet we put up with this notion of nonspecific back pain. So I get it. Back pain is their experience. They're, They're feeling pain, quite often disabling, psychologically disruptive, and everything else. But we cannot have a discussion of what we're going to do for that person until we perform a thorough assessment of the individual and know the precise subcategory of their pain. Is it a tissue-based pain? Is it coming from, in your case, a disc bulge? And I'm assuming we could have, had we done the assessment, figured out exactly 
the sciatic root, explaining the sciatic symptoms. We would be able to then, I'm assuming I've watched a, a little bit of your video, you are a weightlifter. So I'm putting together patterns here. I will bet dollars to donuts there was an open fissure through the collagen that if you lifted with a rounded back, it probably would have put more pressure on the nerve. And if you didn't, it would be less. But then I would also know that I can almost predict the location of the disc bulge because if you were a yoga master and had adopted a lot of flexibility in your back, chances are the front of the disc as you bent forward would buckle down and you wouldn't create the posterior pressure. So do you see what I mean? You said we all have the same anatomy. In fact, we don't. And how we would even test and assess, say, a seven-foot-tall NBA center versus a jockey, uh, it's going to be very different. But anyway, there's the opening context. We can talk about back pain as the experience, but from here on in, if we're going to talk about what to do about it, it always starts with an assessment, figure out the subcategory, and that will give us a bit of a roadmap now on what to stop doing and what to doing. So there's a general framework for the listener. I think the roadmap's very important where a lot of people are looking for the answer, which is a treatment without diagnosis and without assessment, even as you said. And what's probably going to happen is it's a very scattergun approach to something that may or may not provide relief, but it, it doesn't, there's no real clinical reasoning behind it if they're just doing what someone else maybe did to get some help from, from their back pain. It's operating on dumb luck. You might get lucky and you might happen upon the right approach, but I would rather take out the luck component. <laughs> sure. <laughs> My reputation depends on getting that athlete back onto the podium. So <laughs> I, I can't rely on luck. <laughs> and you recognize a lot of the psychological factors in back pain. So I, I suppose, and many people listening to this will have had this experience when you there's the catastrophizing, there's the acute flare and you're like, oh no, I've really done it this time. I've that that's it. And I remember when I did have the the worst neuropathy, I went on a meditation retreat and I was sat for ten days, for the first two days, just ruminating purely about because I had I, I had S1 nerve root compression, so I couldn't plant a flex. And I remember thinking, well, that's it, I'm gonna have to get my car adapted for to have the brakes on the steering wheel and how am I gonna reevaluate my life as a disabled person from now on? And so your mind does jump to the worst the worst outcome. And as a result, that feeds itself into the movement patterns and you start adjusting the you develop an antalgic movement pattern in the way that you might grab things from a, a cupboard or or bend over to pick something up. And so a lot of your a lot of your work recognizes this capacity for, or this this need to undo some of these psychological patterns that we get into. And then again, if you're working, you said you, you've got like a wide range of populations where you might have someone who's the opposite and they'll, they'll always go very type A, who will see it as weakness to take time away from lifting. And I was certainly in that boat where I would keep lifting on on, on top of the pain, through the pain, thinking that I'm, I, if I'm pussying out or I'm, I'm quitting if I stop doing it. And actually, surprisingly enough, <laughs> when I stopped picking the scab for a year, the pain improved. Uh, two stories come to mind listening to that. 
Would you like them? For sure. Okay, you live in the UK. Whereabouts in the UK, by the way? So in the north of the UK, so between just at the top before the border of Scotland. So I've got Newcastle. family in Connors. Oh, I know Newcastle. So you're in Chris Williamson uh, country. Good. Know it quite well. I've got uh, a cousin who lives in Coniston, so east oh, of you. Brilliant. But anyway, the first story is a UK NHS story. Here was a police officer who really had debilitating back pain to the point where he couldn't continue in his job. Talk about the psychological crushing dissonance. It just crushed his life. The man lost his confidence. He adopted a victim's posture. I'm just this victim. And he, this was a powerful, mind-strong man. And yet his pain, but worse yet, it was his treatment that caused him to be a victim. And it showed in his posture, which was positive feedback for migrating stress into the tissues that were causing the pain. It was just a terrible positive feedback loop. Then he goes to the NHS physio who told him, "We, you've tried, but we suggested you failed. Clearly, you are magnifying your pain. And here's this mind-strong policeman saying, what, I'm, I'm now psychologically magnifying my pain? Crushed him even more. And uh, I met with him, and it was funny. So I'm just going to move back and turn the camera down just a little bit. And he was sitting. I did a simple little test where I, I said, sit on the stool and sit up, pull up, and compress your spine. So we applied about 20 kilos of load. And I said, did that mimic your pain? He said, no. And I said, all right, slouch down. Don't move your head and neck. Just drop your chest a bit. Oh, yeah, there's my pain. And I said, but isn't it interesting that you've been, for the whole 10 minutes I've been speaking to you, you've been living in your pain. And when you stand up, guess what your first move is? Into your pain even more. And no one, no one taught him elite weightlifting 101, which is... Get your feet back underneath you. Spread your legs apart. Sniff some air. The body uses stiffness to control movement. So when a muscle contracts, it creates force. We know that. But it also creates stiffness. And it's stiffness that allows this floppy articulated linkage to move. You have to produce proximal stiffness to move a linkage distally. So I, but I just tricked him with coaching. Sniff a little air. Lean forward through your hips. Now, pull your hips through. And he stood up and tears started to flow because it was the first time someone had empowered him to be in control of his pain. And he real I didn't have to say anything at that point. It was just a product of the coaching. And uh, talk about psychological empowerment, the light switched like that. And he became very angry with how he had been treated by the medical system. He'd been given a book by the NHS, How to Live with Your Pain. No one had the expertise to get under a bar and know how to pull with movement competency and migrate the stress away. He was fine, but the man had lost his career. <clears throat> Excuse me. He'd lost his career, etc. So that's that was the first little story that was going through my mind as you were describing the psychological. It, what did I do? Was it 
coaching from the world of elite athletics and movement competency and how to handle load? Or did I do cognitive behavioral therapy? What was it? Yeah, it's, so that this, this was cognitive <laughs> behavioral therapy, but coming at it from a recognizing that he identified with his new pain or his vulnerability and breaking that cycle allowed him to reset his perception of himself and therefore his posture and to get out of that. that. Yeah, but what a relief it was for him to realize that, man, I'm in control of my pain. Absolutely. And he was just free, physically so, and mentally after that. I think it's very damaging for someone, especially as a, a policeman, someone who's quite maybe quite prideful or see themselves as quite a, a, a strong, stiff upper lip person, to be told you've got a functional problem or you've got a psychosomatic problem. Even if that's not what the clinician says, it may be how he interprets it. And as you said, that that sent him further into the spiral of, oh, great, so this is just because of psychological weakness then. And that coupled with being told he's going to have to learn how to live with his pain. It's, it's, it's just, sh it's just shattering for anybody. Yeah, it, it's incompetence. I hate to say that, but that's uh, that's exactly something that I certainly you've mentioned that this guy had, and I remember doing this as well. Which is like almost when you have a chip in your tooth and you're always tonguing it, or you you almost like always just seeking yeah. into the edge of your pain, <laughs> almost to try and remap what's going on here. Yeah. There is a behavior and, of course, a, a thorough assessment. People want me to tell them how to do the assessment. And the first requirement of being a master of the craft is to read people. And if you see the person continually searching, oh, where's my pain? Now, that may come as, as an indicator in many ways. You'll say, describe your pain for me right now. Oh, and they'll tell me about yesterday. No, have to search for it oh, yes, there it is. And it's an indicator that they're looking for the chip in their tooth to tongue. They're, they didn't realize that they just spent the last three hours in a way that wasn't picking the scab or causing sensitization. In fact, they were doing the opposite. They were desensitizing. But now they go right back to, oh, where's my pain? And for that person, would you say, oh, I, I need you to keep a pain journal? So every day you, that's the worst possible thing that person can do. And yet the next person is totally oblivious. They have no idea what activity causes them to get pain. All they know is every time they drive to see their mother-in-law, they get a few cranky days of back pain, not realizing it, that it was the three-hour car drive. And if they could realize the mechanism and intervene with, an, that might be as simple as a lumbar support to migrate the stress off a disc bulge, for example, when they're sitting driving. That was the thing that uh, allowed them to, to cool down. So there's two contrasting subcategories with uh, that, that person. I would say, keep a pain journal. <laughs> and then you will see, you will be able to pull out the pattern of cause and effect now. But they're sure. clueless as to what the patterns are. So you see one person gets the pain journal, the next person avoids it like the plague. <laughs> so you, have, you have two personality profiles almost that you do have to read before you give them a recommendation. And in one of those examples, you've got someone who's spending loads of mental bandwidth on their pain and telling them to spend more of it is only going to 
keep them in that cycle. Whereas for someone else, it's about identifying their triggers. Let me go back to your story where you said, I'm already, again, I'm doing pattern recognition. I see a fellow like you, very disciplined in life, very motivated. Otherwise, you would not have had the history that you've had. And if I said to a, a CrossFitter, so there's the arch-typical prototype, the CrossFit community, they're keen people, they're gregarious, and they encourage one another to keep going, which is a wonderful community to be in until you have an injury and something that, that will not thrive in that. So let's say you take a CrossFitter and you say, oh, don't worry about your pain, just keep going. That's the worst possible thing. But then the next person comes in and they're sitting in front of you and you see the pattern. They are a sloth. Sorry for but that's what they are. What time did you get out of bed this morning? Oh, I normally get out of bed and I get my daughter off to school. That's about seven o'clock. And then, oh, really? What time did you get out of bed today? Oh, about 10 o'clock. Who got your daughter out off to school? And then there's silence. I'm dealing with an irresponsible adult who can't organize good parenting, how the heck are they going to organize the lifestyle changes that they need with discipline to beat their back pain because they don't have chronic pain. What they have is all day long mini acute insults keeping the situation angry and fired up. So there's an example, once again, with that person, I would say, girl, it's time to grow up, behave like an adult, realize the mechanism, and do something about it. Get moving. And here's the plan. Versus the CrossFitter, where we'll say that would be poison for you. Now it's a lecture on the mechanism of desensitization, tissue adaptation, the psychology that goes along with it, and we are going to cool this down for a while. And here's the plan. So we always set it up and then here's the plan. So there's, again, two personality types that is putting together the patterns, keeping them in pain. We've got to disrupt those patterns, but they're polar opposite in, in the approach. But if you're a clinician and you can't read a person, you're in the wrong game. I'm sorry. For sure. If you've got the crossfitter and you're saying you need to take some time out of picking the scab, that can be as difficult and require just as much discipline to not do what they're used to, to change that momentum of what their usual pattern of just pushing through and keeping going. A little hint. Sure. Yeah, there is, you've just identified a form of addiction. They are a probably addicted to exercise and the social milieu around that. And people say, oh, McGill, you're a mechanic. What about the psychosocial? And I think they've never worked with us for 30 years. We're so cognizant of the social milieu. It's just that I thought everybody would understand that, but apparently they don't by just being an aware clinician. So getting back to this person, the, the CrossFitter, they are addicted to exercise and the social milieu, and we've got to break that addiction. Then they'll say, I've tried everything. I've tried PT, Cairo. I've been to the dock. I've had my pain pills. I've been to the shrink and had uh, CBT and all these sorts of things. And now the last thing for me is surgery. And I'll say, really? Surgery will work in some people simply because it's forced rest. 
So now we've got this, the intervention that the addict needs. You, you're aware of the interventions for, for addicts. Yeah, so, so Chris actually did this, which was your recommendation of the sham surgery. I call it virtual surgery. So you can explain it. Go ahead. So, so, so I think this is a really clever idea. And it, it's the, the perfect split test, the clinical trial to, to see whether it is indeed surgery or the processes around it. Now, Stu's recommendation for Chris when he'd hurt his back was treat everything as if you're going for and recovering from surgery, apart from physically going under the anesthetic and having the procedure. So that's prepping for it taking the time out, having progressive recovery afterwards, and not doing anything that you wouldn't have done if you'd had surgery. And that almost forces this hard reset of stopping the acute insult that's happening to the tissues and then allowing that time to heal and then rebuilding from the ground up with the progressive steps of rehab that Stu recommends in his books. That's a, a, a perfect case. Chris, for people who don't know, is a very high performer, both mentally and physically. And he was addicted to CrossFit and whatnot, which is there's nothing wrong with that, except he'd overdriven his back. And uh, the virtual surgery was first rest for the first time. It was the only intervention, really, that you could get him to back off on that highly driven, highly intelligent personality behind it all but biology wound it all down uh, on that note then this leads us into what is the back's capacity for recovery i'm trying to think if i should answer that generically first C can i go back just a little bit and ask a very simple question what is an injury some people will say i have an injury because i have pain or another person will go and have a scan and the radiology report will report a feature and they'll say, that's an injury. Or they might come to me and in our assessment, we will see, and if I can just show this, Yousef, so there obviously is the pelvis and uh, three uh, sample vertebra. Now, I will bet with you, when you had a disc bulge, it's like letting a little air out of your car tire. The, the car tire bulges a bit, but it loses its turgor, its stiffness. And remember, stiffness controls movement. So now the car is a bit sloppy driving down the road. So watch. Here's the disc that has been damaged. You can't see it, but trust me, it's been damaged because one of the definitions of damage is a loss of stiffness. So if we did a stress-strain load on that tissue, just like a torn ligament or a strained ligament, it would have a broader neutral zone. It's been stressed uh, and strained. But now I'm going to watch. I'm going to load this spine in twist. Do you see that the normal joint moves a tiny bit? This normal joint down here moves a little bit, but focus your eye now to 405. Do you see the massive amount of shear motion occurring at the damaged joint? Posteriorly, we see much more load into the facets. So that's why facet pain is usually secondary to disc damage as the joint gets flattened. More load is on the facets. More motion now is being seen by the facets, and they start to wind up. So it started out as a flexion experience now becomes flexion and extension. In other words, their motion intolerance. Anyway, getting back to this notion, how do you see that? We'll do a prone flexion 
instability test and probe and find out where the person's pain is. We might do a fluoroscope when I'm testifying, for example, in cases of whiplash. The patient will be told by the traditional medical system, you've had an MR, there's no visible damage on your neck, you're a pain catastrophizer. That should have healed within 12 weeks. And I say, wait a second, show me your pain. And the person will go through a range of motion and then they get a movement catch in the mid-range. I know what I'm dealing with because I've seen it many times. Let's take a fluoroscope if the court needs proof. And then you will see as the spine flexes at the joint that has lost its stiffness, it suddenly clunks. Ooh, there's my pain, perfectly correlated. We know precisely that it is that loss of stiffness, not detectable in any other way, that is causing their pain. So do you think stretching your neck is going to help that particular person? No. We might start off with a pattern. Push your tongue hard to the roof of the mouth. Touch the teeth lightly together. Grimace down with the corners of your face. Create that, the flexor response. Now, under that pattern, put your fist underneath. Now apply one kilo of upward force, no more, and hold it for five seconds, just one kilo. Start to set the pattern now that, you're br that now you're putting muscle memory into your brain. And for the first time, push the tongue to the roof of the mouth now, let's go through the offense. In disbelief, they didn't get the clunk and the pain was arrested immediately. So there might be an example of, we're talking about a defining injury and pain. Do you see how we have to go through these various layers? So when someone says to me, there's no pain mechanism detected on an MRI, and I think, I think you're a junior diagnostician. <laughs> you haven't done your job. If you can't find the pain, sir or madam, you better go back, get your skills up and go and find the pain in, in that particular person. So there, there's an intro to this idea on, on uh, the, the question, which I, I think was about the capacity for recovery. So, so I don't know if you want to comment on that, and yeah. then I'll address the question that you gave me. But do you see where my brain went? Yeah, absolutely. So what, what you said there is obviously clinical assessment is key and often people will prematurely do an MRI before they've done a complete clinical assessment and then you haven't really got much to correlate it against because you're looking at something which may not be related or may even be a red herring for what's happening clinically. And the second thing you mentioned is the, the second order effects. So when someone looks at whiplash or a disc injury and says, ah, there must be one piece of anatomy involved in this and that's not damaged or that is damaged and therefore that's the cause of the pain. Whereas you've said here that this is about the second order effects sometimes where it's not so much the disc in itself or the disc that could be seen from an MRI, but it's the way that it behaves um, under load or under movement. And then looking at the patient and saying, okay, what are they specifically deficient in? Stiffness or flexibility, for example, and how do we calibrate that to for that specific patient. So some really interesting stuff in there. Yeah, precisely with, with me. I broke C4 when I was in my early 20s. It's got a good chunk out of the front. When I was a younger man, I needed neck stability to subdue the, that mechanism. And I was able to manage it very well. Now I'm in my mid-60s. I don't need stability. Nature has gristled it all up. I need mobility. So now, when I was a younger, stronger man, 
I would tune my self interventions, probably with a bias towards strength and stiffness and that kind of thing. But now as an old guy, I need mobility. Now, isn't that interesting? Just the life cycle of is did, did that tissue heal? Because we're talking about the capacity for recovery. Isn't it interesting how that story now opens up to one of adaptation that goes on for years? And talk about an MRI. It shows the full history of that person's life. It shows all of the old scars. So you will see the scar of a broken C4 with me. But now, what is a fresh wound? What's causing the pain? I, I can deal with that with mobility when that was poisoned to me a few years ago. So the capacity, you've read Gift of Injury. Yeah. And that shows... Again, if I go back to establish a scientific concept before we get into that one, in many respects, the language of cells to deal with injury is force. Mechanostimulation, you can think of any system in the body, whether it's uh, hormonal, musculoskeletal, everything depends on that signaling of force. Now think of even psychology, where you get a, a textbook on clinical psychology and you go to the chapter on clinical depression. What are the postures that clinical psychologists are taught to interpret as depression? Knees together as they sit, sitting with their hands crossed in front of them. There is a classic indicator, pattern recognition for clinical depression 101. Get the person, sniff a little air. Get some fight or flight going. Get under some load. Feel what it feels like just to put 50 pounds on your back. Take command. You know what I mean? And so now that person says, I own the world. I own my pain. I own. I command the load around me. So you've just saw a personality change in me. For that beaten down person, I'm quiet and sympathetic. But then I'm going to build a warrior someone who commands all that out of their body and they, they own the world. What a psychological shift. So what's the capacity for recovery? You saw it with Brian Carroll anyway, in terms of mechanical stimulation. The man had set a world record in squatting. It was just over a thousand pounds. He had split his sacrum with a fracture. He'd really heavily damaged L5 and the disc above and below. If you look at the MRs, no one's going to argue it. it that was a very damaged spine. He did mechanostimulation, bone callusing, which was just an experiment because I didn't know what else to do. So it was an experiment in progress. And I said, here's what I do know about it. And we'll, we'll run it as a year trial. Anyway, long story short, that was 2013. One month ago, he set the all-time all-weight record, squat record. He squatted 1,306 pounds. And he's never, had back, he's never had back pain since. But the nice thing was, look at the MR today. He has been able to remodel his spine. Remarkably, all of the vertebra and discs above the damaged L5 they look fabulous. It's incredible that someone can do that and still look normal in their spine. But he has remodeled, but he was very scientific about it. And I'm not promising that with everybody. But And the other thing is tincture of time. 
as time will just bristle and stiffen. And if it's a motion-based pain trigger, that will slowly go away. But the key for the person is to how to learn to manage it in the meantime. Anyway, I see your face and I'm talking too much. I apologize. <laughs> no, this is going to be really encouraging for people listening that it is possible with the correct management to remodel the spine into something. Which, because I think for some reason, the back is always seen as a much more permanent injury than any other joint. And it seems to have this special status that back injury is like a it's like a death sentence. And to see the cycle of Brian's progress having on from a tissue level much worse injuries than many people will have faced, and yet has gone on to outperform his previous personal bests is massive. Now, I think that leads us into the next question. May I just give a, a scientific concept? To, to guide people in a strategy formation for themselves. Yeah, please do. It, it's rather generic, and it really is around this concept of the biological tipping point. So biology does not give infinite capacity to your body. There's a limit on everything. There's a limit on the force that you can generate and withstand. There's a limit on endurance and everything else. So in, in terms of load, Consider a person who says, I have back pain. I love walking in the hills of Newcastle. They go out every day, they walk for an hour, and every day they go past their tipping point. They've guaranteed that they will stay in pain. And then if we identify that as their precise mechanism and the impediment to recovery, we'll say, you like to walk an hour in the hills, get it, going out in the sunshine, nothing better for the psychological uh, aspect. However, you've just guaranteed failure. Can you walk for 15 minutes with me? No pain? Yeah. Easy. Good. We just guaranteed success. Every time you eat, go for a 15-minute walk. By the end of the day, you've walked an hour cumulatively, but you've done it with a strategy where you just guaranteed success. So interval training. So there would be an interval exposure example guaranteeing a success because you stayed under the tipping point and you let a little recovery. Here's the tipping point with the level of my hand. If you keep working below the tipping point, you will extend the tipping point. That's the lovely thing about adapting biology. And now you've created a margin of safety. But what most people do and I think Chris will admit to this, he would gain a little bit of ground by increasing his tipping point, and then he'd go and use it up again. He was right back doing his, his thing. And I said, you just guaranteed failure again. Why don't we just stay here with discipline now? Three months longer than you wanted to. And what you did was you created a margin of safety. So now you can go back to the gym and you've earned the capacity and you don't cross that. So there's a strategy for most people. This is so important because if you've got the type A crossfitter, weightlifter type people, they're going to, and I, I was so guilty of this, when my back was really at its worst, occasionally you'd have a good day. You'd wake up and you'd be like, ah, oh, back doesn't feel quite, I'm going to max out today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you end up just setting yourself back for weeks. And, then, and, and it's always, oh, I feel okay. So I'm just going to take the piss with it compared to, as you said, like not seeing it as an all or nothing, not seeing it as, I'm going to have total rest or I'm going to try and max out and actually just work within. But there's something, there's a big ego hit with working at a lower percentage of your previous max because you think you're operating in a shadow of your former self. 
So I think being able to say, no, I'm just going to stay the course and see it as the long term is... May, may I comment on that? Please do. Okay, so now we're going to play a game because we've just recognized another pattern in that patient. We've got a high performer and they have the internal goal of I'm losing the ability to reach my next personal best or whatever that is. So I have to go through a goal setting discussion with them. And this is just pencil and paper stuff. And it's interesting. I set the room up. This is not haphazard. I don't sit in front of them the way you and I are. We sit down and I'm never in front of them. I'm at the same level and I'm off at 45 degrees. And I adopt a very submissive posture, all by design. This is interviewing 101 to extract information. So if you go to the FBI or whatever and learn how to extract information, you will recognize these techniques. And then I'll say, so what's your goal in all of this? And I'm going to tear them down a little bit because the goals that they currently hold are causing them to fail, like you were afraid of losing your hard-won fitness. And if they start saying, I want to play golf, or I want to, and, and I just point out to them, you do realize that you want to play golf, but you're in pain. You've continued to fail at getting out of pain, and you've failed to build the capacity to play golf. How about this? Or I might say, I'm, I'm, I might suggest a goal. Say they're not making $2 million a year playing their sport. They're, ju- they're just a guy. How about if your goal is, how many kids do you have? Oh, nice. Do you like your kids? Yeah. Do you see grandkids coming on the horizon? Yeah, I I can hardly wait for that day. I said, how about the goal is you are going to be the best rocking 80-year-old granddad on the face of this planet, walking the hills with your grandchildren and really showing them an example of how to live life. And then they start to reflect on that for a minute. And they said, yeah, that's really what my goal is. My goal is to live a robust life, provide the best for those people around me, really get back to human values here. And then it shows them, okay, you can have a high amount of athleticism now, realizing that biology always makes you pay. You are going to hold that high level of athleticism for a shorter interval in your life. Go look at the World Masters Games, which I'm part of all the time with the athletes that that compete. Most of them are new athletes because the ones who won gold in the previous Olympics are now worn out. They can't compete at world-class level. If you take the guy who holds the uh, world record in shot put for men over 70, do you think he was an Olympian? There's no way. He found his athleticism later in life. So my point in all of this is, once I point out the, the how biology governs all of this, the path to becoming a rocking 80-year-old is a little bit more disciplined. It's a bit more even keel. And then we have a discussion about what is sufficient strength? What is sufficient mobility? What is sufficient power? And those, what is sufficient will change through the life cycle, as I explained with myself. To me now, mobility is more important. Never used to be before. So that's the discussion now on athletic, what is sufficient, and how you're going to get through. Maybe your goal is, I want to rock when I'm 100. I can promise you the way you're going, you will fail. 
<laughs> it's so, a very it's a very heart-wrenching discussion to have with some of them, but it's the first time ever that anyone has played hardball with them and really brought them to reality of what biology will give you. It's the sweeping the carpet from underneath them, but it's look, you've been doing this and it's not working, so we're going to need to change the, the the tactic. And I think this is this is a fundamental human um, desire. And I think it's why quick fixes and all the marketing techniques always work, despite people even being aware of them, is because they always want the shortcut. And will often spend longer looking for shortcuts than actually if they just did it the long way. So an analogy there, or a parallel with what you just described, is people wanting to learn trading. And they want to immediately go for the the binary options and the the high highly leveraged trades and and make fifty percent or two hundred percent on their capital within the first month. Whereas the quickest way to guarantee zero return is if you blow your account. A lot of wisdom there. <laughs> that goes with every profession. I was working with an electrician yesterday on a, a project, and I said, "That's nice technique. I like what you've done there." And uh, he said, "I learned a lesson." very quickly from a master electrician. And he said, don't worry about being fast, get good first. <laughs> then, then, and I, I watched him wire up the panel. It was neat. It was logical. It was efficient. It was beautiful. All the, all both sides of the, we're 240 volts here, which you are, but then we split to 110 phase on either side and you got to balance the loads. If you're a good electrician, if you're a master, and it saves money on the hydro bill and all the rest of it. So I was just commenting on, I, I like what you're doing, because I don't see that out of the average electrician. And uh, get good first. That is interesting. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not very sexy. Everyone wants to get fast, but they don't want to do the long, boring stuff to get good. I have a comment about that. They may not realize it. And what I mean by that is very few clinicians do follow up. When I started the experimental back pain clinic at the university 20-some odd years ago, we started out with two-hour appointments. And my medical colleagues said, are you nuts? What are you going to do for with a patient for two hours? Well, Yousef, after the first year, we changed that to three hours. We <laughs> found that was the length of time that was sufficient to really investigate why the person has pain, what were the impediments that have stopped uh, them from having success with previous attempts, really get into it. Being pain-free, is that a realistic goal? And also, does that necessarily equate to healed tissue? It may or it may not, depending on the, uh, the person. Now we have to talk about what's healing. If we had the micro-movement example with whiplash or something in the lower back, nature if that is what their pain trigger is, nature will gristle that over time. And that uh, you will see probably some arthritic spurs at that level. Uh, the radiologist will say, oh, you've got uh, degenerative disc disease. What a horrible thing to say to a person. What will happen biologically is that disc will gristle a little bit. It'll be invaded by some sprouting of arteries and, and veins and that kind of thing. It's all going to stiffen and gristle and the pain will go away. Stop stretching it. I've just let the thing settle. Have they healed? That's your question. They can certainly manage it. You've given them movement hacks now around that. So if I was to teach them, every time they bend down to pick up 
uh, their grandchild, they bend down, pick them up, and then realize they've just triggered their pain again. But if we teach them to play baseball or cricket in your country, they'll be familiar with the outfielder's pose like this, hands on the knees. So I'll say, all right, go play cricket. Now, at this point, tune the curve of your back and make it sweet. Hump up like a camel. Oh, yeah, that's my pain or my discomfort, whatever. Do the opposite. Lift your tail. Oh, yeah, no, that triggers as well. Find the sweet spot. Good. Now, you're shrugged, anti-shrug, down into that sweet spot posture with no pain. Good. Now we've got that. Now just mildly push my fingers out. I'll push my fingers laterally into their obliques. So now they're learning to stiffen into that pain-free posture. Now their brain and default motor pattern has always been to lift with their back. But now I'm going to say, pull your hips through. Pull your hips through. Don't move their back. And then all of a sudden, for the first time, they realized they just picked up their grandchild. And then we might go to a kettlebell. Okay. Pull it up your thighs. Good. No pain. So they're learning how to not trigger pain, realizing that they haven't healed yet. They haven't built that margin of safety between the tipping point and the load that they're creating. But slowly over time, they will build more capacity if they stop picking the scab, as you pointed out yourself. On MR, that will always appear as an old wound. But the assessment will show whether or not it's the pain generator. Now we're going to tickle the dragon's tail. Let's start adding more load. There's a way to do that. It's, we use, I just call it the three-day rolling cycle. So let's add a little bit more load or let's pick a better example of, I want to ride my bike. Okay, they've had a nasty disc bulge. Every time they flex over a bike, they get the sciatic symptoms that they're very familiar with. But they really love riding their bike in the hills of, I was going to say Huddersfield, but uh, that's not too far from you, is it? <laughs> it's not, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, see, Stu knows. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so they uh, will say, go, let's set up your bike to optimize the stress distribution in your body. We might raise the handlebars. We might increase the length of the steering stem, bring the bars to you. We'll set up the bike as best we can to move the postures away from the stresses that trigger your pain. Then go ride three minutes. You heard me, three minutes, that's all. Then day two, audit. How did your body respond to the three minutes? And they might say, Oh, I just got the little sign. I'm not ready yet. Good. We just learned something through the experiment. But they might say, I feel fabulous. Wow. I, I could just, out in the sunshine, I feel absolutely fabulous. And then they make the mistake, they go and ride more that day. That's the mistake. Day two, you simply audit, but you have to allow the adaptation to take place. So now day three, add three minutes plus another three go ride six. Day four, audit. Don't do any more. That's your adaptation day. So am I healing the tissues or am I biologically adapting them? It's a really interesting discussion to have. And this the precise mechanism that we're trying to adapt will, will tell us whether we're actually healing or not. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. They're learning a strategy to manage their injury, whatever that happens to be, and if they're in fact to enjoying life, 
and nature and the tincture of time will give them will what heal. they want. That makes a lot of sense. And it's a very practical way of looking at this too. The only thing that I, I would add to that is you, you need to have a decent bike lock if you're going to be riding around Huddersfield because you're going to get your bike stolen otherwise, but terrible. So you did mention that... <laughs> I, I, there isn't... Oh, I... It's I, Again, seriously, talk about the social... Impacts. Could you imagine if you were to say, all right, someone's going to steal your bike? Let's say, particularly if you're a woman, and I know that sitting in a chair and laying in bed and staying in home is the worst possible strategy to beat your back pain. But they live in a place where if they go out at night, they risk physical violence. That is a social impediment. What do you think they're adherence to your instruction is every time you eat i need you to go outside and walk 15 minutes it'll be zero so until you can deal with that social force that is an impediment to them them getting better you will fail guaranteed so isn't that interesting and yet again people don't see that in our work i don't think yeah and and this is huge that I think a lot of people, because of the Cartesian model of mind-body medicine, that the the mind is seen as a separate entity, whereas really in reality there is no point where the nervous system ends and body begins. It's it, and I think you recognise that very much in your work. But we we're talking about N- not according to some people who well, not, try yeah. they they want to comment our work without knowing anything about it. It's uh... well, there's a lot of people I see that criticise that saying yeah you're just uh you're, you're purely mechanical but i think they, they just haven't read your book properly. well none of them have worked with this yeah, yeah. so <laughs> saying about this kind of this threat threat response that can happen and obviously there if, if you want to go mechanical there is a cellular counterpart to that which is the kind of increased density of alpha and gamma receptors and creating this allodynia or like the, seeing pain seeing normal movement and perceiving it as pain but the the thing that i still struggle with Stu, and i, I wanted to ask you about this is how do you reconcile somebody in the position you've just described that has, let's say, flexion intolerant pain and wants to overcome the threat response, but they also want to reclaim unused motion in their pack. So on the one hand, you hear people say you shouldn't stretch into flexion, but on the other hand, if that range of flexion is limited because of the almost like the the sense of, oh, I can't go there because that's where the, the danger is. How do you reconcile the two? I don't reconcile them. I use a scientific approach and determine what potential the person has. The assessment is king here. But when we once we get to through the assessment and say, okay, let's say they have a disc bulge, that it's a fact when they add flexion plus load. If we just got on all fours, on our hands and knees, and they hump up like a camel, that's full flexion. Did it cause pain? Probably most of the time it wouldn't because there's no associated compressive load. So there would be the progression. Let's start working a little cat and camel if because that's a very safe place to start. There's no associated load. But let's take let's put this into a real life situation. Right now, do you know what the UFC is? The the combat yeah. MMA league. So I've got currently three, four, 
four active athletes in there right now, and all of them have jujitsu skills. So I don't know if you know what jujitsu is, but it's a ground fighting. It's also a stamp. But anyway, my point is the skills of the jujitsu practitioner are really enhanced if they have full spine motion. We call it reptilian spines. Man, if you can be a snake, you want to be a boa constrictor to be a, a great jujitsu <coughs> athlete. But here's the typical story of why they come and see me. They're mid-career. They've uh, got a lot of motion in their back. Every day they would do, say, 100 sit-ups, and they would push their palms flat to the floor when they got out of bed to keep the functional range of motion to be a good jujitsu uh, practitioner. But it's now made them so disabled they cannot train. So they'll say, I need a flexible spine. I'm a jujitsu master, and I can't. So what do you recommend? And I say, the only thing biology is going to give you here is you got to stop the cause for a while. So strategically, what we're going to do is build a core of iron, the big three exercises. People will disparage them, not realizing that they have restored athletes to the world's strongman, powerlifting, uh, at virtually every Olympic sport because it's a foundation for proximal stiffness in a linkage. It, it's, it's a requirement of movement. So we'll spend the initial time doing that, which doesn't trigger their pain. It doesn't take them near their pain. So they build a core of iron and the control and stiffness that will probably engineer out the disc bulge or the micro movement or whatever it happens to be. Then they'll say, I really have to get on the mat because I'm in the UFC and whenever it's scheduled. And okay, let's start some exposure to jujitsu, but you never take the down position on your back. You're always going to play on top. No guard work for the first uh, little while and start to get your timing back and that kind of thing. And then we'll be upright and dry land training. And I might just start very simply with a reach. Okay, reach for me. And they, oh, yeah, no, there's my pain. Okay, use your hips a little bit more. Now take a a contact around a person's neck, better footwork, better drop step. Now, bam. So did I go near my pain trigger? No, I'm starting to flow in a jujitsu fashion, but I'm emphasizing more footwork, more hips within that more controlled, stable core. We're athletes repeating the patterns over and over again, improving the muscle memory, and slowly we're going to add a little bit more load. And so can I just ask oh, at this point, Stu, yeah. is the, the point here is, is it the periodization? Is it that there's someone who's used to doing lots of flexible spine work and to, and that's causing the trigger for their pain. So we say, okay, we're going to take some time out. We're going to focus on the stiffness. We're not going to be doing Jefferson curls and that kind of thing for now. And then when they've established that, then they reintegrate it with their old requirements for movement. I would say partially yes and partially no, but the it depends on the person. It's what biology will give. And you, this is an experiment in progress. So the cycles of training, which you're, you're talking about, you, you identified that, and that's exactly true. But in some people, we may have to emphasize technique change a little bit. And don't tell me it doesn't work. We've got people back to Abu Dhabi submission championships. We've got people back into the UFC. So they... Can you tell me of a great athlete, someone who dominates the world, 
who isn't managing a musculoskeletal problem of some sort. (laughs) They don't exist. So what people need to realize is the ones who get back onto the, the, the stage and, and competing once again are the ones who are successfully managing and they found a strategy that works for them. So how much we can do now is the question. How much technique modification? I look at Brian Carroll, for example. So he just set the world record in a squat. Was he squatting that heavy in training and whatnot? People might be surprised. I'm not going to give away all of his squat secrets, but to build the capacity with belt squats to take the load out of the back, to really address the weak link that has so much more biological capacity, but a usual squat doesn't distribute the stress to build up that weak link in the chain. And the average trainer, I'm sorry to say, probably does not have the depth of a toolbox to go into and tune the machine and really tune out the weak links, shore up the things that are a little bit vulnerable. So that's why I'm hesitating. It, 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 yes and no on this. We can tune our way around it. And fabulous athletes are very clever in, in creating adaptations to still get the job done. And so this is maybe why I remember you saying that there is a perfect storm of injury of, say, powerlifting and yoga or elite gymnastics because the demands are so opposite and if they're trained concurrently you're almost undoing some of the tissue adaptation on one side to create the one from the other side and I think that's partly what contributed to my own injury as well I've naturally got quite a narrow waist I was I've got a long torso I was doing lots of conventional deadlifts plus gymnastics training maybe it was a matter of time I don't know if internally you're maybe cringing and thinking, Yusuf, what are you doing? But but yeah, the kind of this perfect storm was an interesting idea. I can comment on that because chronic exposure causes specific adaptation. So what I mean by that is you go take someone who's very good at powerlifting. By definition, they will be very poor at something else. So we have a flexible spine. What engineer would stack a pile of oranges and stick load on the top and expect the oranges to support the load? It it doesn't work. You would use a rigid beam. So you have a flexible spine, which is great. It helps you tie your shoes. It helps you to procreate. It does a lot of good things. However, if you're going to squat a thousand pounds, you better not have a stack of oranges. You better have an I-beam. Now you've got to, stiffness is, is king in powerlifting. You've got to stiffen that spine to allow it to bear more load. And they build mass, they build more muscle force and strength, which is stiffness as muscles create stiffness. And then they put a lifting suit on and a belt to create even more stiffness. So this allows load bearing in the body. But now go tell a uh, powerlifter to throw a ball. It's not possible. Yeah, exactly. And then tell them to, in other words, a stiff hamstring is the strongest hamstring possible for a power lifter. But now I use the analogy with people, are you easy to kill? The more unidimensional your athleticism, the easier you are to kill. So that's what MMA is all about. You, you, what you, a great you, question. You, you surveil your opponent, 
and you decide what is the weakness that's going to make that person vulnerable and easy to kill. So a power lifter, they're strong. They are the strongest. There's no question, but they're easy to kill because a little bit of mobility and speed, a martial artist would have a lot of fun. However, now let's go to the polar opposite. Let's go to the yoga master who's very flexible, but you don't see them playing middle linebacker in the NFL or a rugby prop because those loads would crush them. However, they're fantastic at what they do, but they are easy to kill as well because they've created a unidimensional athleticism of mobility, which I'm not judging and saying one is better or not. I'm just saying the more unidimensional you become, what you gain on the swing, you lose on the merry-go-round. Biology doesn't allow you to have it all, but most of us want to be somewhere in the middle. And I haven't even introduced the concept of elastic, the elastic athlete. So consider a, an American football player who's quarterback. To throw a ball, or in baseball, to throw a ball 110 miles per hour. They need elasticity. The first elastic is in the hips. The second is across the chest. The third is in the arm. You put those three elastics together, you can throw a ball 110 miles an hour. Now, go do deadlifts. You will get stronger, but will it make you throw the ball faster? No, it will slow you down. Now, let's consider the golfer. We know in professional golf, there was some influences there, and some of them started Olympic lifting. They didn't hit the ball any further, and they lost their careers through injury. Because a golfer is an elastic athlete, and the stronger you are, the more you slow down. Go hit a golf ball and try and hit it a long way, and you'll use too much muscle, and it won't go very far because you added the stiffness. The great golfers, and I've measured them, quite a number of them, they are masters at relaxing and creating pulses, and storing and recovering elastic energy in their body. Getting back to your question, most people want to be somewhere between the yoga master and the power lifter. But now you're making a deal here with God who runs biology. Too stiff, too strong, you won't be fast and elastic. To yoga-like, you don't have enough stiffness, tuned stiffness, to really run fast. Because the best runners, they use the stiffness in their foot as one, etc. So, in terms of tuning, if you take the two polar opposites, the adaptations don't work that way. And anyway, I hope that explanation yeah. puts some context to my. Uh, I, I don't know when I said it's the perfect storm, but yeah, it is. So in practical sense, if you sit all day in front of your computer in this pandemic and then go to the gym at night and think you're going to set some personal bests in poor form deadlift, I'm not picking on deadlifts at all, but I'm picking on those who do not have the coaching of what's poor form and they'll say, oh, butt wink is okay when they go down. Really? Butt wink is okay? Get under a bar, put the bar on your back. And just do a pelvic tilt for me. Flatten your spine and extend it. Do that 10 times. Now, did that trigger your back pain? Yes, yeah. it did. Foot sure. wink is your problem, son. Or they nasty. might say, no. Oh, no, that's not my pain. Okay. So you're more on the yoga end of the spectrum. I wouldn't go too heavy. You'll probably do well, and, and you can do much more mobility. And in fact, 
If you're trying to be a gymnast, which is handling your body weight with wonderful aesthetic motion, that's probably the way to go. However, I've seen quite a few ex-Olympic gymnasts. It's not the way to life. Remember being the rocking 80-year-old? It ain't the way to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet. And well, that really helps clear clear up that that the dichotomy on two ends of that spectrum. And I think with powerlifting, particularly because you're almost rewarded for having the shortest range of motion that is legal in competition. And so, as you said, the tight hamstrings, all of that. If you can get away with having a big belly that you can just tap the bench press on, then fantastic. And it maybe explains why you do see very high level bodybuilders that can do the splits because they are used to training with the fullest range of motion to get the most feel in their muscle, get the most kind of um, pump. And so it's not about moving the weight, it's about slightly lighter loads and being able to take a muscle through its full range of motion, which in, in the data shows that maximizes hypertrophy. I might also say, if you can do the splits, you chose your parents. Oh, There's yeah. an enormous yeah. anatomical uh, gift there. To In do terms that. of hip, hip morphology, for sure. I think it was you that pointed out that Bulgarians have some have the highest degree of hip dysplasia in the world as well. So, um, well, if we follow orthopedic disease, it's actually the poles, Poland, uh, who has the highest rate. Now, again, people don't get this, and they say McGill says all poles. It isn't that <laughs> at all. What I'm doing is taking a national average, and that's all. But on average, the highest rate in Caucasian. Uh, populations, Poland has the highest rate of hip dysplasia, and the mechanism is they have, on average, the shallowest hip socket. And then if, as we go through Europe, you'll see pockets of sub-genomes, shall we say, and then when we get to the Celtic nations, they have the highest rate of FAI, femoral acetabular impingement, because they have the deepest hip sockets. And you will see the differences. Where do the Olympic weightlifters come from? Yeah, exactly. Right. So, Versus where do the golfers come from? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> anyway, so there, anyway, I didn't want to derail that, but that's well, but an interesting point for people to hear. And, and, and you said that people say, oh, Stu's going to say all polls X, Y, Z. And yeah. I think this is part of the, the issue. And I'm, I'm picking up a lot of lessons here about my blind spots with regard to binary thinking. And Certainly with my recovery, I was thinking all or nothing. I would do three minutes on the bike and then I'd be like, that's it, I'm going to cycle across the country. Or I've, I can lift with 60 kilos and my back doesn't hurt, so I'm going to go max out. And the other side of that is this um, wanting to be an elite yogi and an elite powerlifter or taking the, the golfer to getting them a bit stronger. I think that one thing that people often miss, and it maybe ego comes into this or seeking pushing the numbers or defining themselves by their numbers is that there's there is a law of diminishing returns with any athletic pursuit and going from not being able to squat the bar to a 1.5 body weight squat pretty good returns on athleticism pretty good returns on jump height and movement and running speed taking it from 1.5 to two times a bit less Taking it from two times to three times, the amount of bandwidth and energy and injury risk and weight that you might have to gain and stiffness that you, or tightness that you gain, all those things make it really not worthwhile if you're just doing it to become a better basketball player or a better gymnast or whatever. And I think it's easy for people to just pick a, a route and just optimize for that one thing and 
stick the blinkers on and not really think about how is that impacting the rest of what I'm doing. So that's been a really interesting lesson as well. Would you want another little analogy on that? When I have a discussion with a patient on this yeah, kind of me. thing, if it pertains to them, let's take motor vehicles. So you can build an F1 race car, which is really fast and agile. You can build a dump truck, which can carry tremendous amounts of load, but don't take it to the F1 racetrack. And then build a really endurable car to, to, for a Baja desert race, for example, four-wheel drive, great really rugged vehicle you take any one of those vehicles out of their tuned context and they're they're their last place so now you have to choose your vehicle for the demand of the the race or the task shall we say now you have to tune it so let's take an f1 race car let's add a little bit more horsepower if you don't beef up the suspension, you just tore up your suspension. If you don't change the rubber composition in the tires, they're just going to spin. Or if you inflate them slightly incorrectly. So I don't know how many car mechanics there are in the UK, but let's just say for sake of argument, there's 10,000. How many of those can build an F1 race car to win not only this year, but last year and next year as well? I will bet you there are three. Three and 10,000. So my point is there's only three masters of the craft that can tune all of those little things. If you add a bit more horsepower, you've got a lot of other adjustments to make to that car. So now you get where I'm going with this. To tune an elite athlete, it's a lot of tuning, and there's very few at the top. If I look at uh, producing sprint athletes... I know who I would send them to because this one coach has more metal performances in the Olympics than any other human. That's a pretty good bet. And I've worked with him. I know what he does. He's a master. He doesn't leave too much that he misses there. And he pulls speed out of the human. He very much is aware of the psychological state when too much training goes into fatigue and slows the person down and pollutes their brain with subpar performance and ruins muscle. In other words, he's, so do, do you see my point? If you're going for a personal best or a world record, if you're not dialed in, you will reach your tipping point and get hurt before you reach the goal. And I think it's just a different way of saying what you said earlier. And yeah, I wish folks would back off the, the, I want my personal best. And I say, really? How about, let's go back and be the world's best granddad. And that really tugs at their heartstrings and changes their, or I, I really want to be the best spouse, the best doctor, the best model for my patients, as within the best of my abilities. And if people would broaden out, I think, what their goals of life really are uh, and just say, my goal today is to be healthy, well and appropriately fueled or nourished, whatever the word is. And I don't know if Dan John or not, my, yeah. uh, my uh, Dan's a, a good friend of mine. They call him the, the, the everybody's favorite uncle in fitness or whatnot, but he just has these lovely expressions. And he says, I can summarize nutrition for you. Eat like an adult. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, he, he just has the gift of putting things in such a, isn't that just a lovely 
encapsulating move like an adult, eat like an adult, be responsible like an adult, be kind to your brother like an adult. Oh, it boy. summarizes all of that. And yeah, yeah what, what you're saying there is basically <laughs> like you, you pay your money, you take your choice. And every decision has a consequence and has sacrifices that are needed for it. I'm currently reading a, a book by Greg McEwen called Essentialism. And uh, it's the perfect book for me because I, I'm a doctor. I run propane. I run uh, another company. I have rental properties. I'm trying. I'm juggling a lot. And the whole purpose of the book is, you sometimes you need to sacrifice the good for the great, and to try and tell yourself like, oh yeah, I can handle it all. It's fine. And we want to think that we can do it all, but there are costs to pay on the back end, and a lot of that is inevitable. We are limited human bodies that only have a certain amount of capacity. We only have a certain amount of hours in the day. And in the case of what we were talking about before, like you only have a certain amount of training recovery to spend on something. And yes, if you want to be the elite sprinter, you can do it, but it's there's going to be a cost for it. I love talking with you. I could talk to you for hours. I, I wish we were in person and we could have a coffee or a beer or something like that together. But I was just thinking as you were describing that scenario, you may have heard of the book called The Happy Body. And it's written by my good friends, uh, Jerzy Grigoric, who, who has three world records in Olympic uh, lifting. So he's no slouch and his wife... Uh, but nonetheless, he says, hard choices, easy life. Hard, easy choices, hard life. Yeah, and it's just some of the old proverb, proverbial wisdom. So true. I'm really enjoying this. Oh, and may I also say the second thing about you is that now I doubly appreciate the time you've spent with me and the time you, you spend doing this, because obviously you don't need this and yet you're still doing so much oh, no, to you. Thank you very <laughs> much. <laughs> I, I, I am. I was fanboying hard today about the fact that I get to speak to you. So no, I, I appreciate you coming on because I know how much your time is, is valued per hour as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm on uh, with uh, Rowing USA. They're, they're now National conference I'm on today in a couple of hours, so I got to get my brain on elite rowing tuning here. <laughs> oh, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I hope that goes well. Hey, Johnny here. Just a really quick interruption to this episode to let you know about a resource we now have up and running on propinfitness.com. One of the most popular questions we get from readers and listeners is, hey guys, what would you recommend for my starting calories for fat loss and muscle gain? How much protein, carbs, fat? How many calories should I eat to begin my journey as a starting point? Normally, this is something that we do for clients when they come into our program, the Propin Protocol. But recently, we have opened up the calculator that we use for all of our clients so that you can get a free calculation, a free starting point of what we would recommend if you were to start as a client with us for your protein, carbs, fats, and calories overall for either fat loss or muscle gain, customized to you and your goal. If you want to get access to that, it is totally free. You just have to go to propinfitness.com forward slash calculator, enter your information, and we will send your macros and your calorie recommendations to that email address. And we'll also send you a few free resources over email just to pad that out and ensure that you have the best possible chances of reaching your goals in fat loss and muscle gain. Hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. I won't take up too much more of your time, Stu, but there was a couple of things I wanted to ask you from a more kind of personal perspective, if that's okay. So there were a few back questions, but actually I think these 
we should bring in my wife at this point and oh, she'll yeah. answer them. <laughs> Let's bring her in. Um, so the, there's a few things you pointed out there, which are that you hold yourself to extremely high standards and you also don't do things by half. Like you, you picked a thing which was, right, back pain. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to complete back pain. And I'd love to know if there's any maxims or any principles that you hold yourself to that you could share with us and the listeners today. I think we really ought to bring my wife in here <laughs> because she keeps me humble. I have tried to become a master of the craft and it's I've been in this game getting on for 40 years now. And every patient I see, I study. I learn from every patient. And I keep saying, if I am lucky enough and I keep seeing patients, I'm going to be really good by the time I'm 90. And I'm still working to, to do my most perfect assessment, my most perfect prescription, my most perfect coaching, etc. So I don't think I've done it yet, but it's that psyche, I'm assuming, but I try and do that with, it's just, it's like you, you try and master things. There are other things I like to do in life and I try to be really good at them. I, I try and mentor other people to achieve the, the, the same level. There's a, a billboard down the highway from where I live and it's by a real estate agent. And it just has a little name at the bottom who the real estate agent is. But in huge letters, the billboard says, work hard, be kind, that is all. There's a guy who I need to put you in touch with called Kit Lachlan. You I, I, I know Kit. I corresponded with him quite a number of years ago, actually. Uh, okay, yeah, because he, he also wrote a book on overcoming back pain. And he finished the podcast we did with him recently with a very similar quote of do some work, have some fun, make some money. No, it was, so, well, I've butchered that. It was something like, something like that. I'm going to have to dig it up now. Cause, yeah, uh, it's the same theme though. And the point yeah. is the, the man has soul. Yeah. And, and that's all I can, I've been lucky in meeting some really stellar performers. I've, as patients, I've had kings, royal family members, presidents of countries, people who absolutely dominate the world in sport, the absolute world's bests. Every one of them had a soul. And for an athlete to pull performance out of the body that no one else has been able to achieve they were able to take their brain to quite often a very dark place because to densify neural drive, to, to create super strength and super speed, you have to be on the brink of fight or flight. You have to be in a controlled way going to death. And I really mean that. That takes a lot of soul to do that and sometimes it makes other parts of their lives difficult they're uncompromising they're whatever but every one of them has that soul and to look into them and and see that sometimes it served them very well in some parts of their life and but and and i know in my own life 
I will get into trouble. And I, I think in your life, you've experienced there's a price you pay for being hard uh, driving. However, it's the hard driving that has led you to the person you are today, isn't it? Yang and yang, it's the soul. Absolutely. There's two lessons I'd like to draw out of that, if I may, which is people as their complete entity, both in your clinical work and by the sound of it personally as well. You don't divide or segregate the kind of the mind and the body and the soul. And you see the patient as a complete being with the aspirations and they've come to you with a reason and you, you deal with them as they are. And the stuff you've said about emotional intelligence being the key as a clinician is huge and I think definitely overlooked, at least with medics. I think with with a lot of the, the other clinical practitioners, I think they have more of a handle on this. I think medics tend to be a bit more on the autistic spectrum. And I in a in the nicest way, I certainly consider myself on that spectrum as well. The other lesson is doing what you do and mastering each of the component parts. I think you said that to perform the best clinical assessment, you know, the best examination of someone, the best program, all these things are not very sexy in themselves, but by focusing on them, they make up the masterpiece that um, emerges as a result. Uh, I'm not going to disagree. No, that, that's, that's a good summary. But there's a price you pay for that as well. Absolutely. I so, probably, I won't get into it. So, <laughs> the, the final thing I wanted to ask you, and if we can end this with a bit of a quick fire round as well, I don't know if that's going to work, but with picking a subject as multifactorial and wide as back pain and the kind of rabbit holes that looking at any part of it sends you into in terms of the physics and the guy wires and the psychosocial models and the cellular mechanisms, and how do you structure your thoughts? How do you create the mental models or the frameworks to be able to make sense of new data and new things that come in? I don't talk too soon, I hope. I think first. So I know in one of my textbooks, that's the beginning of it. Stop and think. So hopefully the person has good training in science. And I'm using science very broadly here in terms of neurology, medicine, mechanics, anatomy, psychology, sociology, neuroscience, etc. Now, I've been lucky in my life. There's a couple of my friends, they'll say, oh, you're a spine slut. You will do anything with anybody, anywhere, anytime, as long as you learn something about the spine. So there it is. It's always been unified. I don't, I, I would enjoy talking to a neurologist or what but it's always around the framework of the spine so that's maybe one unifying component to all of this but anyway i think about the scientific foundation to guide disciplined thought and then is it reasonable is it not reasonable what is the counterpoint so a couple of times you've asked me a question today and i've said for this kind of person the answer is more towards this direction but on another person it's more towards the polar opposite so i try and test myself if i'm starting to reach a conclusion do i have an alternate hypothesis that i have been able to test and dismiss because that strengthens my hypothesis and then develop 
uh, assessment skills, which I think I would say the average clinician had better assessment skills 30 years ago before the technology. Uh, or just go to a veterinarian and watch a veterinarian assess a dog who cannot speak, who's lame. You will probably see the old assessment that I wish so many docs would get back to. Anyway, that's, I hope, the start. Create a scientific foundation, try and test yourself, and then recognizing the person in front of you, what is their learning style? How are you best going to coach? And at that point, you have to be an actor. Are you going to play tough love and tell this person your inability to get past your sloth will guarantee your pain? And I'll shock them. I hope you enjoy your pain because that is the pattern that that you are maintaining. And I, I can't help you past that. So enjoy your pain. Versus the next person where I'm very kind. They've had a, a tough go in life, and but give them a strategy now to pull out of it versus someone where I got to take them to fight or flight and fight for their lives. That is the psyche that I have to get them into to create the density of neural drive. So do you see I'm always play acting? And that's another uh, component of it. But anyway, th- that's the thought process that I would go through if, if I'm having a conversation. And so I'm pretty boring because there's a lot of blank space when people laugh. But there's, there's <laughs> That's why we need there. beer. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, there's, there's a lot in there in terms of seeing the person what, for what they are and then appealing to maybe the masculine in them that rises to the challenge and to the prodding and to the, the berating. Or is that inappropriate? Is it someone who's maybe already feels fragile and needs the nurturing and appealing to the feminine essence in them. And this think- is why I can't have a conversation on Facebook or Instagram or any of those social media things, because there's never any context and you're limited in the amount of speaking and listening that you can do to get the person's perspective. So all it does is end up with this big mess of people arguing and I can't have anything to do with it. <laughs> oh, yeah, you, And, and the, given the amount that you get misquoted already, Imagine in 280 characters making a statement and then someone comes along, oh, but this, you know, well, yeah, obviously, because I've, I've only, yeah. So I think that the approach that you have there of having a scientific framework to hang concepts on, and I personally, I wish I had this in med school. Med school is often described as a drinking from a fire hose. And it does initially just feel like stuff's being thrown at you without really any kind of structure or context. And only over time, after it, it's sitting there, it starts to have this emergent form. But instead, beginning with the very basics, with none of the details, not learning about G-coupled protein receptors and, all, and just saying, okay, what are the very, very basics without even giving them names, just concept skeleton and then hanging things on means that you can then assess any incoming new claim against that framework and you have a way to approach it and i suppose the other tool that you use is steel manning yourself or taking the opposite argument and saying how does this fit in with this or what could be the exceptions to this rule Uh, and then looking at the the patient and the assessment And, and i think you're right that whenever you see old gps or especially vets because yeah as you said the patient can't you can't take a history from the patient they become very good at examination skills. And I think when you see, and I, so a bit of a tangent, but 
people in accident and emergency, or the e, you call it the ED or the, the ER, and they will often slate the GP. They'll disparage the GP for sending in a patient with query pneumonia, and they're like, well, it's obviously not. And you're like, yeah, you're saying that it's obviously not, and disparaging the GP after you've seen the X-ray and the bloods, and you've got the ECG, and you've got all these other kind of investigations at, at your disposal. And I think it can make people lazy to have those investigations or the kind of the cheat codes without relying on the basic clinical assessment first. And we were saying that about the MRI before as well, of doing an MRI prematurely and then not knowing what to do with the information. So can I ask you a few quick fire rounds based on on what we've just said, which is, have you seen the new percussive massage devices? They're basically like a power drill with a golf ball attached to the end. What are your thoughts on those? Two words, it depends. And that's how I would have to start any kind of uh, discussion of something like that. First of all, I need a, a context and I would put any passive approach of which this would be one. I would put any exercise prescription into this category as, as well. Let me ask, what is the goal? So you need an intervention here to achieve a goal. What's the goal? You must know this. And then test yourself and say, what is the best tool given what this patient has presented with to reach the goal? Now, if the answer is the percussive device, you've got your answer. But if you don't have a goal well-defined by assessment, you're relying on dumb luck. So if I was to take two cases now, I would take a case of the person who has, unbeknownst to them, joint laxity through injury. They've lost a bit of disc height or whatever. To percuss that would stir up a hornet's nest. <laughs> but to have someone who unbeknownst to them, they never give their back muscles a break. If you were to palpate their erector spinae like this and then feel them just as they're standing, they're rock hard. And all you had to do was to say, could you pull your ears over your shoulders? And then all of a sudden, the back muscles just went quiet. So you can imagine if I went around holding a pound of butter like this all day, my biceps by the end of the day would be screaming. Now I might get a little bit of uh, stretch reflex, tendon modulated stretch, perception, feedback of analgesia. So a percussive device would do that. Did it address the cause? No, the cause was put the butter down and relax the muscle. So if I got the person to stand and hover, and this might be a good exercise to do for them, I'll say, relax, jazz hands, jazz knees. Now, get your ears over your shoulders and hover. Let's do this with zero muscle. Just relax and hover. We might go to a military at ease position. Ah, did that take out the feeling of in your back that you were using the percussive device to deal? So do you see, I'm trying to, again, test myself. Now I know the goal would, if your answer is the percussive device is the very best tool, and it may very well be, but you've tested yourself and say, no, I have an alternate tool, and then I'm going to audit to see if I was right. Did the muscles shut down? And did the person report, oh, thank you, doc. 
you didn't treat me like a five-year-old. For the first time, you explained to me the mechanism, and now you've empowered me with a strategy to take out that muscle fatigue grip. So what is the goal and what's, what is the best, or is this suggestion, this hypothesis, the best way to achieve that goal? Could answer, every day I get asked, what do I think about deadlifts? What do I th-? And I love them and I hate them. <laughs> If they're the right tool, they're the right tool. (laughs) uh, Carl Newport, who is a professor in, I can't remember where actually, but he's written a few books on digital minimalism, deep work, all themed around high performance, focus, eliminating distraction. And one of the tools that he, one of the methods he recommends is exactly what you've described about Facebook, about using Facebook. Because many people are afraid to give it up because they say, oh, I keep in touch with my family and friends and whatever. Neglecting the fact that it also drains hours and hours of their life every week. And the question is simply, (laughs) okay, if Facebook didn't exist, what would be the best way for you to get in touch with your family and friends? You know, what's the most, the one that generates the most connection and the best deep relationship? And it would be, I would call them every fortnight or every week. Okay. Better, Better yet, wouldn't you go and visit them? Oh, if possible. Even better. Yeah. COVID permitting. So yeah, it's looking at just because Facebook is there and it's a convenient tool that's at our fingertips doesn't mean that it is the way to to keep in touch with family and friends. It just happens to be the most obvious one. So yeah, I, I like that approach. It invalidates my next two questions though. <laughs> I was going to ask you about um, mattresses because when I moved into this house, I... I, I didn't have the cash to, to buy a bed. So I thought, I'll use this as a chance to explore floor sleeping, do what the do what the Japanese do and the, the tribesmen. And I did a silly video about it on YouTube and it, loads of people were writing saying, this fixed my back pain and I, I feel so much better and so on. Do you have a particular recommendation on mattresses? Or I certainly think that sleeping on the floor is maybe too extreme. I'm sure there is a there's a point in the middle where you get the best of both worlds, but have you done much much work into this? Not a lot, but I've done a little to have a rudimentary opinion. So there's a book by Bart Hex, H-A-E-X, and I forget the name of the book. I apologize for this. It's something like The Ergonomics of Sleep or whatnot. And he goes into categorization of body types and pain mechanisms and those kinds of things. So if you take, you, you mentioned Japan, the Japanese have typically a flatter back, a resting state. It's a rather flatter back. So to sleep on a futon, which is a bit stiffer and very flat, might be very comforting. If you were to ask someone with a lot more lordosis in their back to sleep on a futon, on their back, they would say, this causes me back pain in the morning because they've stressed their spine out of a neutral lordotic, which is natural for them, and they've flattened it. So they've been sleeping in stress all night long. Or they might be a woman who's quite curvy. So they have wider hips, wider shoulders, and narrower waist, and they lay on their slide, and you see their spine is deviated quite substantially. And then you test them in your assessment, what triggers your pain? What's that end range of motion? So you see for them, the futon might be 
the thing that's causing the stresses that's causing their very specific back pain. Years ago, we developed a device called the Prop Air, which is an inflatable cushion. So a woman uh, might place it on her side and, and pump it up to tune for her. Yeah. Okay, bingo. So this is a pregnancy <laughs> pillow. Yes. Uh, anyway, so you're already migrating stress away from uh, a pain trigger. So th that's the first part of that. However, if you have a flatter back, probably a futon might be uh, very good. Now, let's take another person, and we're doing pattern recognition now. So let's take a heavier male one who snores, that's part of the pattern, and they lay on their back. Now, some people will say, oh, I love the memory foam. And the next person says, oh, I hate the memory foam. That person, and I can prove this because we did a study through infrared, we monitored students and we put them to bed for, I think it was 34 hours. And we watched their spines swell over the 34 hours. When you wake up in the morning, you're a little taller than when you went to bed. As it turns out, the hydrostatic pressure through the day squeezes fluids out, and the osmotic pressure of the disc sucks fluid back in. If you lay in bed, it keeps sucking up fluid to the point where your spine is now in stress. So we know this from space travel. The first 24 hours in weightlessness, you have grown about five centimeters in your spine to the point where your spine is under so much stress, many of the astronauts will take analgesics. Five centimeters is huge. It is. Two and a half inches or thereabouts. But people do this themselves. If you get flu and lay in bed all day, you'll notice your spine is screaming, for the most part, if that's a, a sensitive pain so trigger for you. That, that is so interesting because, so I, I was, a couple of years ago, I was hospitalized with, with a couple of infections and I had a sudden worsening of my back pain and I lost sensation and motor function of my left leg. Mm. And at the time I thought maybe it's because of the systemic inflammatory response and that's just worsened in a pre-existing disc bulge, but it sounds like maybe just prolonged bed rest combined with a pre-existing bulge, caused it to extrude and compress the S1 nerve root. Very much so. That's very possible. Anyway, this is why we would re remember that woman example who I said, what time did you get out of bed this morning? That's where my brain was going from that motivated that question. She has no chance to de-stress the pain mechanism because she doesn't get out of bed. She stays in bed longer than eight hours. So anyway, there's just an example. Now, getting back to the, the pattern of the heavy man who snores on his back, they don't change position. They wake up in the same position as they went to bed. So memory foam conforms to their body and gives them support and supports the curves. Now let's take a fellow like you or me. We're wiry types, not a lot of meat on our bones. A memory foam doesn't fit the pattern because we roll and change positions throughout the night. And to get out of a memory foam, you have to climb up out of the depression that you've made, which causes muscular work. And so my question then would be, do you have a sharp pain in your back when you roll over? And if the, the patient says yes, I would say, lose the memory foam. It's the wrong bed for you. You would do better with a firmer base and a nice thick pillow top, which facilitates taking the stress out of your angular shoulders and hips 
and that supports the curves and this kind of thing. So there's quite a bit of science on this, but I've given you some of the science that we've done within the framework of studies like BART Hex. And, and I think of uh, consults that I've done. There was a, a player in the National Football League, so I'm, I'm talking about the American Football League. This fellow was a fullback in the mid 200, so about 250 pounds, but quite a bit under six feet. And his buttocks were so large that if he laid on his back, you would see daylight under his low back. It was totally unsupported. But here was the problem. He couldn't have a roommate when they were playing together on the road because he couldn't sleep in a bed. He had to sleep on the floor. His buttocks were so huge that there was no, he had to sleep on his tummy on the floor and his teammates would trip over him or whatever. And so I ended up building what we called the prop air. So it's an inflatable device and it filled up his low back. And for the first time, it allowed him to go back and sleep in a mattress. And uh, he was comfortable again because we migrated the stresses away. And I know I get criticized. People say posture doesn't matter. And, and I thought they haven't done the experiments because if you lay in bed, you will get discomfort if you stay in the same position. It might be on your shoulder, it might be on your hip or whatever. If you lay in bed even longer, that discomfort turns to pain. Now, if you still don't move and migrate the stress away from that pain-causing stress concentration, you will now get injured. You will get a stress concentration and a bed sore. So there it is, pain, injury, physical damage. You got to migrate the stresses with a posture change. It's it's non-negotiable that this idea of posture doesn't matter. It migrates stresses. Anyway, the principle is a scientific one, and it's applicable to uh, sleeping within the context of what the person's body type is. Do they snore? Do they change positions? What is their genetic makeup and the natural curves? Where is the neutral zone and the what we would call a position of respite? Have you been able to assess in that patient a posture that is totally pain-free? Now, do you have the coaching skills to coach them, to show them this is your safe place to go? Now, did I just do cognitive behavioral therapy or was it... Uh, biomechanical coaching. It was everything. I love how I'm asking you, Do you know, have you done much work on this or do you know much about this? Your answer of not really, but I have, uh, I've got a bit of an opinion on it basically me means I don't have a PhD in this specific topic, <laughs> but I've done a few studies and read a hell of a lot about this. That is such a great answer about the about the mattresses. And I think it puts it really into context for different body types. So thank you for that. Do we have time for one more or should we wrap things up? Oh, I, we, we can do another one. I am mindful. I have to get my mind into world-class rowing here uh, in just enough. a minute. You might appreciate this. Do, do you know who I sleep with? Who my wife is? No. Oh, okay. Her name is Catherine Barr. She's a sports psychologist, which... You can imagine the conversations that we have. I, I might see an athlete for their back pain, and then I find out that she's had a, a session with them. And But we never discuss individuals. <laughs> That's just a rule we have. But she also, she rode for Canada for a national team in the 80s, but she's picked up master's rowing about eight years ago. And since that time, she's been the Canadian champ, the American champ. Two years ago, she was the world champ. So I Family live- high performers. 
my athleticism is very limited, but I live with uh, a warrior who psychologically will not allow someone to row through them. So you can imagine the the soul that can produce that performance. But if you were to ever meet her, you I have to speak for her because she would never in a million years indicate her her championships and that kind of thing. And she's the nicest person on the planet until you go to the point where you want to row through. It ain't possible. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> so why did I get into that now? I where were we headed with that? I'm oh, sorry. We, we were on the final. By the way, I, you realize I'm now going to get killed and I will pay for that statement for the next three months. But uh, anyway, <laughs> no, she's just... a fabulous woman. But We'll chop that bit out of the podcast. Just leave it. <laughs> um, so the, the final question was about hanging. Because a lot of people have been using evolutionary arguments about monkeys hanging from trees and that we don't do enough hanging and that's why we have back pain. And I remember from your chat with Chris, you likened hanging to a cheeseburger and the cheese being pulled apart. And that's what's happening to the discs. Is there any place for hanging in someone's training program if they have back pain? The answer is absolutely yes. I'm going to give you some examples and the answer could be absolutely no. And I'll give you some examples. I don't quite recall the context of that with Chris, but in any case, let's take the person who I will ask the question, do you have sharp pains rolling over in bed? And they answer yes. And then they go on one of these decompression machines, which is basically attraction or hanging, and they get worse, not realizing that what was causing the pain triggering uh, rolling over in bed experience was the picking of the scab of the micro movement. So if we teach them add a little bit of an appropriate brace, roll over a straight leg. In other words, I use Elite Jiu-Jitsu 101 to teach them how to roll on the ground, just as a Jiu-Jitsu master would very efficiently and effectively. Put that joint into traction where it needs more stiffness would be the polar wrong thing to do. Stiffness would apply. Now I'm going to take the American powerlifting champion for men over 70 years of age, master's champion. We have to build training capacity. So he deadlifts over 400 pounds. So if you can imagine being over 70 years of age, and trust me, you have no context for this yet until you get there. I'm getting quite close myself. So 400 pounds, I couldn't consume that. 20 years ago, but I sure can now. In order to build training capacity, that athlete does one rep of, say, 80% of competitive load. That capacity is all used up. So in order to build capacity, we would then hang them on the bar. And that allows the disc and structures to restore to allow another repetition. Or I might do a thoracic spine extension stress stretch as a restoration and an antidote for the huge amount of capacity they just used up. So do you see, there's an example of it was the right, perfect thing to do. And I gave you an example of when it was the perfect, wrong thing to do. D does that give a context for... Uh, traction. Now, if I want to suck in a disc, I wish I, I had you when you were at the peak of your 
discogenic oh, acuteness. Me too, Stuart. <laughs> I wonder if we could have had you quietly lay on your tummy, and with each exhalation of breath, you would let the tension come out of your body, and then I could play and pull with some traction on your legs, and then I could do a little windshield wiper routine like this and watch your pelvis gently roll, because out of our laboratory, we would measure as the disc bulge starts to grow, we can get it to vacuum and retract back in with a little bit of traction and it vacuums in even faster with a little bit of motion. But if the person has combined instability, it now became poison. So do you see how we even have to, I call it romance. We have to romance the joint and keep playing with the nuances to find out what the very best vacuuming is. So a decompression machine hanging upside down with decompression boots are just, there's it's no intelligence. Well, it's blunt it's a blunt. It's a blunt force. There's no intelligence. There's no skill to it. But a skilled clinician can just romance that joint and produce the effect. Finesse and if they get the, uh, the disc, one, that's it. That that makes perfect sense. Stu, I appreciate there's an art and a science to all of this. That might be a good summary to leave on. The great clinicians, they know the science, but they're also artists, and that's a that's another nuance that gets lost. If you don't have good hands, if, if, if I can get a phone book and I'm going to pull out a mustache hair and I'm going to place a, that hair under the first page of the phone book, I want you to find the hair. Because if you can't, you have no ability to feel a little twinge caused by back pain that you didn't have to ask them if they had pain. You saw it in their eyebrow and you saw it. You felt that motor unit fire with ugh, just that little grab. Now go to two pages under the phone book. Now go to three. Now we're getting to the level of perception. So that's an art. So do you Subtle see you need stuff. art? You need art and science. Sure, yeah. With training clinicians, it's... Uh, Stu, that is a great place to end it on. And I appreciate we've gone over time. Thank you for going through all of this. And uh, now, now you know why I keep the mustache. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I see. It's for the, it's, it's a training tool. Yeah. Um, it's a source of uh, a palpatory skill device. <laughs> oh, perfect. So what what's the best way for people to find out more about you? And also in terms of buying your books, what's, could you give us a quick guide on who should buy what book? They're on Amazon, or you can go directly to our website, which is backfitpro.com, and they ship worldwide. But the first book I ever, I never, if we go back 30 years, I never thought I'd write for the lay public. I, I never saw myself in that world. I was trying to become the best scientist and clinician that I could. So I wrote a book for clinicians. That was Low Back Disorders evidence-based prevention and rehabilitation. So it's full of references. I think it's, isn't it close to 600 pages or something? It's awful to read. However, it, 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 the third edition, I really tried to detail the nuances of the assessment. So that's my best resource for the assessment and, and that kind of thing. Then I wrote Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance. And that was really written for athletes and coaches to recognize that there's a pain mechanism, but now let's hack our way around creating a robust foundation and then progress it to, to fairly competent performance. 
The, the next book was the story of Brian Carroll. So here was a world champion, came in, heavily damaged, total constant pain. And it was his story of how we adapted his body back to getting on the podium again. Now we have to write the epilogue, which is setting the all-time world record. But nonetheless, it was his story of how he did it. The last book is called Back Mechanic, and I wrote it for the lay public. It was, Yusef, it was the hardest book I ever wrote. I diddled back and forth on that for five years, believe it or not, because the publishers said, can you write a book for the lay public? They need to hear your story, and we got to call it three easy steps or five easy steps to fix your back. And I said, but that's a lie. I cannot do this. And they said, but that's what you have to do to sell. And I said, but I'm the but wrong guy. There's always guy. this tension with the publishers and yeah, I'll just yeah. give us the, the quick tip. What's the ultimate yeah. secret to fixing your back pain? You're like, oh. So as the book turned out to be 17 chapters <laughs> and I describe a little bit of the scientific foundation because I cannot treat a person like a five-year-old. They have to have some base understanding. Then I guide them through a self-assessment, which sadly is a much better than they will get from almost any family doctor physio because it shows them which motions, postures, and loads trigger their pain. The next chapters are on spine hygiene and movement tools. It shows them how to tie their shoes without triggering their pain, how to brush your teeth, how to get on and off the toilet, basic daily stuff, how to roll over in bed. Then we get into the foundations of human movement, which is you've got to build proximal stiffness. If I want to wiggle my finger very quickly, I had to stiffen my wrist. There's no other way to do it. We show exercises for that, which the big three always bubbled up in our studies to be the, the best there. Then we give clues on how to progress this in patterns for pushing, pulling, lifting, carrying, going to the floor, etc. Then the last little bit is questions you are afraid to ask, and I know you know this, but the public doesn't. If you're a frontline clinician, you will have had couples come to you and say, the last time we had sex, we knackered our backs so badly that we're now abstinent, we're fearful, and what do you have for us? And the clinicians threw up their hands and say, there's no guidelines for us. We, we don't know. So that was the motivation. We did the first investigation ever on sex positions and motions that with the goal of creating an atlas. So the clinician would assess the person as to what motions and postures trigger your pain. Now go and look on the atlas and say, ah, if you do this, it won't trigger your pain. So now they have... And the, yeah, and the effect on quality of life of the patient, especially when they, they feel ashamed to even bring that up to the clinician. And as you said, if it's a, a frontline medic, they might just be like, here's some baclofen, off you go. To instead have, okay, here is how you can continue to 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 do the activities and rehab your back. It's I'm, I'm glad you did some work into that. That was the, uh, all I was saying was that's an example of, there's a, a simple atlas in the last chapter. That's one of the questions that most people are afraid to ask. And yet it has such a huge impact on their lives. And again, talk about the psychosocial. It's mammoth. And yet, I don't know if people 
try and create this dichotomy between <laughs> mechanics and psychosocial, and there is none. But anyway, so that was uh, back mechanic, and it was so difficult for me to write, trying to preserve truth and integrity so that it's substantive and it really addresses the real cause versus making it consumable and not becoming so burdensome. So if you read the reviews on Amazon, I, I think they would indicate that we found somewhat of a balance there, but that was such a difficult challenge for me. Yeah, I I can imagine, especially with the, the pressures of the publishing and then trying to dial things back into what's the minimum effective dose for this audience. But but you know what I find, Yusef, is I don't really need to go on social media in that when a person reads the book, and again, we follow up so we know exactly what our score is, it helps about 18 to 19 out of 20 people. It doesn't help everybody because some people, they've got some very interesting nuances to their pain mechanism, but it helps 90 to 95% of people when they follow the details in that book. They go and then tell 10 people who are struggling. And that's our sales approach. So it's a very quiet. Um, maybe it's under the radar. I wish I was a marketer, but then I'm glad I'm not. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a whole, whole world in itself, isn't it? And it's it's uh, crazy. I think that's how I came across your book as well. I was furiously reading Ultimate Back Performance while I was in an acute flare of back pain. And <laughs> it was an interesting experience to be reading like what's effectively a textbook while like desperately, it, it was the, the definition of just-in-time learning. <laughs> so, Stu, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And how can we, what's the website for finding all of, all of your stuff? Backfitpro.com. Amazing. And if, if, if I may say, Yusef, I've enjoyed this so much. It's uh, wonderful to speak to someone with uh, your perspectives. And again, I am cluing in as to what you have on your plate. So thank you so much for this service that you do through these podcasts. Honestly, I've yeah, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed this one. And uh, I would love to do it over coffee at some point. Hopefully, as all the lockdowns settle up. That, wouldn't that be nice? Brilliant. I hope the uh, rowing thing goes well today and i'll send you the links one once we've got everything edited together okay and just so you know even though my wife is so good at what she does on the rowing course are you married no i've oh. um, well, when you do get married okay you'll realize that she doesn't listen to me that much now she'll say quietly well i sort of do but anyway there you know how that goes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm not responsible for her championships is is what i'm trying to say uh, fair enough. <laughs> chris was saying how how he had such a great time seeing you and and staying with your family and that was the, the that that is great. I'm good. I'm good friends with Chris. I think he's going to move stateside at some point over the next few months. Oh, okay. So he, he we live. There. We don't live in the states, thank goodness. Yeah. You, but you, you, uh, um, is it Vancouver? No, I, I live in Middle Ontario. So Ontario. we're a couple of hundred kilometers north of Toronto and south of North Bay, if you know that region. But I took him out to a cabin in the woods, oh. and uh, we, we had a, a good. That's when you really get to know people. For sure. Yeah, it was wonderful.
And Chris is such an eloquent guy and and such a sophisticated thinker. It's uh, really nice. Yeah, very much. It's been great to see his growth over the last few years as well. Yeah. Amazing. Have a wonderful day. Thanks again for your time. And uh, please do stay in touch as well. Let me know if there's anything we can do for you. Okay. Fabulous. If you want us to post this, if you were to email me whatever the contact is on where you're going to put it, I'll pass that off to Sarah and she'll bring you... Apparently, I don't even know what a follower is, but apparently we have a bunch of followers. Maybe it'll help. Yeah, I will do. Okay. Fantastic. All right. Have a good day, sir. Thank you. Speak soon. Yeah. Bye now. Bye-bye. Hey, Johnny again. Hope you enjoyed that episode. So we have an opportunity for you, something that we have put together that is totally free, that is a synthesis of everything that Yusuf and I have learned in fat loss, muscle gain, nutrition, training, lifestyle, habits, the works. Everything that you hear on these podcasts, condensed and more, condensed into a synthesis of seven days of learning and immersive experience to totally overhaul, enhance and accelerate the results you're getting currently in your training and your nutrition, no matter how advanced you are or aren't. We put together a virtual learning interactive coaching experience called the 7-Day Kickstart that you can take part in whenever you're ready to. To join, simply go profinfitness.com forward slash 7-Day Kickstart. Enter your details and you'll be sent everything that you need. You'll be coached by the Profin Fitness coaching team over seven days for free. You'll get seven days of content sent to your email completely for free. And it gives you a look behind the scenes of what we do with clients and gives you a ton of information that previously was only available to paying clients inside of our world. So profinfitness.com forward slash seven day kickstart to take part. And we hope to see you inside. See you in the next episode. Speak soon.